Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 69 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with Dr. Jacob Longer, a professor of Assyriology at Johns Hopkins University. His research focuses on the social, legal, and economic history of the ancient Near East, and, in particular, on approaching cuneiform tablets from both philological and archaeological perspectives in order to better define the social contexts in which they were written, used, and stored. He is currently working to make linguistically tagged editions and glossaries of the Amarna letters freely available via the ORAC workspace. In this episode, we spoke about getting started with Akkadian and Sumerian languages, cultural exchange as an integral part of studying the economic history of Mesopotamia, and explored the debate on when cuneiform tablets were baked and written on. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm really, really excited because I think you're only my second Assyriologist. So um, I get to delve more into a subject that I don't really get to speak about very often. So um, I'm going to start you off with what I hope is going to be a fairly simple question, which is how did you get into Assyriology? Like, where did this love come from? Yeah, well, I should say that, you know, I've always loved old stuff. Um, Ever since I was just like a little kid, I would be in a museum and I would go to the old stuff part of it. And I would stare at these display cases and I would just be like, wow, that is so old. Um, So I always had a real interest in it. But um, then um, academically speaking, I guess, um, I actually come from sort of more of a classics background, um, you know, where I started taking Latin and then um, all through middle school and high school and Greek as well. And then in um, college, uh, I was all set out to be a classics major um, when I suddenly discovered um, art history and how much I loved art history, modern art in particular. My university had this program in classical art and archaeology where um, you could take major in art history, but count classics courses as 
departmental major. So I thought this would be the best of both worlds. And it was really there in, in art history that I kind of discovered the ancient Near East. And uh, it was in a class on you know, Eastern influences on early Greek art. And I just was sort of fascinated by these different cultures that I didn't really know much about because I kind of am a language nerd and I love learning the different languages. I was like, I, I have to, you know, start doing this too. So when I applied to graduate schools, that's kind of what I wanted to do. And I think for a variety of reasons, the discipline and I really sort of um, sort of clicked. Uh, so once I started doing it in earnest, I just fell in love with it. I can totally understand that. I got, let's see, I went to the University of Missouri for my undergrad. And over the course of my five years there, I there was only one class that was not specifically classics. It was like vaguely called Egyptian and Near Eastern art. Very vague. Right. Um, and yep. so, yeah, we had that same. Yeah. So I totally get that because I was like, oh, this is different. Let me take this. And then I took it. And now it was I don't know. Was your class like 80 percent, 85 percent Egypt? And then like the rest was Near East all crunched together or was it more spread out? I, you know, I, I think it was a pretty fair 50 50 split. But but that was also really the only class in in all of art history that was like straight up Near Eastern Egyptian stuff that wasn't, you know, sort of coming at it through Greece. But I, I thought it was really interesting sort of looking back on it. Uh, I did my undergraduate at, at Princeton. So, you know, a, a good school, but the, the only really place that you could at Princeton then that you could access the ancient Near East was through art history. Um, you really couldn't do it on the language side of things. I think things have changed now. Wow. That's so, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, still today you look at kind of the breakdown of um, where schools have departments of ancient Near Eastern studies. And I think that Princeton still isn't on that list. I, I, I mean, I, I know a couple people who went there, but I still, I, I'd have to ask them, but I still don't think there's um, any Near Eastern program there, which is sad. I would, I would think that there should be. There is a Near Eastern studies department, but it's more focused on um, what we would consider the modern Near East. But th there is someone now the, uh, in the classics department, actually, who works on Acadian. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Okay. So then once you got into like a seriology proper in grad school. Um, how did you go about picking your your topic? I mean, it's um, especially coming from undergrad where you only do have kind of one experience of learning about the ancient Near East through the art historical perspective. Um, I would have found it quite confusing if I took that one class at Mizzou and then tried to go into a, a grad program. I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, I look at like ancient Mesopotamian art and I just go, oh, it's beautiful. I love it. It's gorgeous. I love all the like neo-Assyrian stuff. Um, but I would not have the foggiest idea of knowing what to start with or what to pick. How did you do that? I know. And and especially on the on the language side of things, which is what I was doing in, in graduate school. You know, you're you're talking over two thousand years of of writing in multiple different genres from you know, spread over the entire Middle East. So like you could choose any one of those sort of time, place, times and places, and that could be sort of an academic discipline in its own right. We had four years of coursework before we even proposed a uh, dissertation topic. So it was basically like doing an undergraduate, a focused undergraduate degree all over again. And, and that helped some. Um, and then I was also really fortunate in that, I guess it was the summer after my second year, the Oriental Institute where I was, doing my PhD, 
uh, Chicago um, was starting uh, renewing excavations at this ancient site of Alalak. As part of this, they needed to have an epigrapher on staff to work with any, um, you know, cuneiform tablets or other written sources that would come to light. Where instead of going and finding a scholar at another institution who was competent and excited to do this, and there would have been tons of people who were would have been thrilled to do it, they decided to ask one of their own graduate students to do it, and then to train that person up for the job. And so they asked me to do it. I, of course, I said yes. And to some extent, sort of what I was then going to be working on was like chosen for me, um, you know, because I was going to be going out to Achana. I was Alalak, the modern name is Telachana, uh, looking at the tablets that had already been excavated in the museum and coming up with a dissertation topic um, out of that, which is what I ended up doing. It was not what I, I had been thinking I was going to work on something different. I had been thinking I was going to work on um, first millennium um, legal texts in, in Babylonia, something like that. Oh, that's so cool. Um, I mean, I guess it, it sort of made your path easier than if you kind of were told, okay, this is sort of what we need you to do. So please do this. Um, it, it does, it does make the decision easier. Absolutely. I mean, I talk about this with my graduate students all the time now, you know, coming up with that research question. It's so hard. It's so hard. You know, um, you really have to read around a topic and, you know, to familiarize yourself with it. But how do you even know where to start to read and so on and so forth? So to that extent, I knew where I needed to find the topic. And that made it a lot easier. I'm I'm just very curious um, as someone who did not ever really get to learn anything about cuneiform um since since you are one of the rare uh assyriologists who i've met who doesn't focus on the art it's very exciting for me so for someone who studies the language aspect um i know cuneiform is one of those cool ancient languages where you know you kind of see the tablet you show little kids a tablet and you just go look at this cool amazing ancient language wouldn't it be so fun to read this and they go oh yeah i'd be like a you know, superhero, if I could read this stuff. Now, as somebody who can, uh, did you find it intimidating having to learn to decipher these texts? Or was it like, oh, no, 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 I got this. This is really cool. I got this. Yeah. So, so I mean, first, we, we want to be careful, but between uh, distinguishing between the languages and the script, right? So cuneiform is pedantically a script. So we could actually use it to write English. And it was used to write many different ancient languages, but sort of the two core ones in Assyriology that we work with are Akkadian and Sumerian. And I was different than a lot of people who I started graduate school with in that I had not studied Akkadian before. A lot of my cohort in that first year of Akkadian had some exposure to, if not Akkadian, then other Semitic languages. And so the learning curve was pretty high at the beginning, but I was also um, pretty jazzed up to be doing it, you know. (laughs) So I just threw, I threw hours and hours and hours at it. You know, I really, I had no social life my first year of graduate school. And Friday night was just, you know, three or four hours of, of Acadian, but it was fine. I was, I was, you know, I'd had a good time in college. I was excited to be doing this and it was like the right time for me in my life. And, you know, once you start getting the stuff under your belt, it starts to snowball a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, okay, also, when I think of Assyriology, ancient Near Eastern studies, I I will definitely say probably the first thing that does not come to mind when studying something there um, for me is the economic history. I don't know why. I know it's like a big thing, economic history of, of many civilizations. But for some reason, I just think of Assyria and I'm just like, no, 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 no. 
I mean, of course, I know that they had a whole a whole deep, complex civilization, but I don't know why it doesn't, you know, pop to mind. So when studying like, you know, economic history, a lot of that revolves, yes, around the text, but also um you know, there's so much, so many, like so many components that go into uh, economics. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, and I'm wondering. I am a armchair fan of numismatics because I loved Byzantine coins. So I'm curious, how much crossover is there, and do you get to do anything? looking at coins even if you're not a specialist in material culture so for us um most of the stuff we're working on is before the coinage so there aren't there aren't coins but questions of exchange right and mediums of exchange are absolutely sort of central to what we do there's this fascinating book that the sociologist did called elusive silver where because everything you know in so many of our texts is given in in amounts of silver people are buying things for so many shekels of silver where where shekel is a is a a weight unit right like 8.3 grams and his central question is well look there's no natural silver in in Iraq, in Mesopotamia, right? So any silver that's in there has to come from outside. So to what extent are they actually circulating silver when someone purchases something? Are they like dropping over a small bag of, of silver? Or is this purely just for uh to, to, to make the exchange possible, right? Is it exist, you know, purely as a as a financial device? Um, and then he so said what he did was look at three different periods and go through the texts, take a deep dive and and argue. And it's just absolutely fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yeah. And, and just to sort of go back to what you were saying about when you think of Mesopotamia, you know, economics isn't necessarily what leaps to mind. I think that's true, right? For most people, when they think of Mesopotamia, they think of Gilgamesh or they think of um, the Assyrian reliefs, right? They saw in a museum or something like that. But I, I think one of the things that makes um, Assyriology so special as a field is that there are hundreds of thousands of economic documents that are preserved. It's just astonishing. I think that I read somewhere that there is no comparable data set for economic history until the Middle Ages, right? And you think about how far back we are. So you you literally have sometimes the equivalent of like somebody's wallet, you know, with all of the receipts and things like that, as if it had fallen out of their pocket and to be dug up 4,000 years later. You know what I mean? And, and think about how infuriating and how amazing that would be to have Right. Like seeing where they shopped, figuring out the days. OK, I know they went to the grocery store on this day and they spent all of this money. But why did they go back a day later and buy only two things? That makes no sense. Oh, that's wild. But, you know, as you were saying that, yeah, you're right when no one thinks of economic history. But also when talking about Mesopotamia, I, I was also just realizing um, and, and until you get kind of into the nitty gritty um, for most lay people, um, they don't even really do a great job of defining, you know, what the unique cultures are within the Middle East at, in, in those early times, because I think, you know, the field is just generally slapped with Assyriology. Um, but I was just realizing no one really knows what that means, like at all. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, like, you know, do they explain that when you're learning about this in grad school? Because if I was to say, oh, you're an Assyriologist, I would assume, oh, that means obviously you study, you know, just ancient Assyria, whatever that means, code for something. But, um, 
you know, you then and then, you know, if someone happens to know something more, they'll say, oh, so is that, you know, Babylonia, Sumeria. So, you know, if, if you know, how would you explain this to a lay person who's just like, oh, seriology is very broad? Yeah, it's a it's it's absolutely terrible from a branding perspective. Right. It's just just horrible. Um, and the the reason has to do with the, the history of the field. It's a name that goes back to the 19th century. We're first deciphering cuneiform tablets, didn't really understand sort of the linguistic context of the the Semitic language that they were uh, that they were reading, that these tablets were written in, right? So, so now we understand that the language that was spoken by the Assyrian Empire, for instance, is a is one dialect of Akkadian called Assyrian, but there was another dialect that was spoken in the south called Babylonian. And we understand that these two dialects make up the language we call Akkadian, right? And this is just a really rough, like geographical division of these dialects, but then you'd also have to add a chronological angle to it all, right? So you have old Assyrian, middle Assyrian, neo-Assyrian, old Babylonian, middle Babylonian, neo-Babylonian, then you have standard literary dialects, you have all of these different things, none of which is sort of conveyed by the name Assyriology, right? And then on top of that, they also realized that this wasn't the only language that was being written in cuneiform, but there was actually an older language for which, in fact, cuneiform was invented, which was called Sumerian, which is not related to Akkadian. So there you go, right? And and really, um, already by the um, late third millennium, this writing system had exploded out of Iraq proper and would over the next millennium be written all over the Middle East, you know, all the way into into Egypt and, and used to write other languages besides Akkadian and Sumerian, Hittite, Hurrian, Urartian, all, all sorts of things. So it's a mess. And I think that at the end of the day, the way I would describe it is, um, you know, an Assyriologist is someone who studies cuneiform tablets to learn about the cultures that um, lived in the ancient Middle East. Uh, and one of the great things about it is that that encompasses so many different interests, approaches, textual genres, etc. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I totally agree that it is bad branding because there's like so much. It's a whole universe. They're, they're each such distinct worlds. Um, and I just find it so regrettable that Something that started way back, way back, you know, um, toward the beginning of the 19th century has stuck around. I've, I feel like we're at a place where we might be able to maybe better define. I don't know if it's just like pure lazy laziness now that we're like, oh, but it's stuck. So let's keep it that way. Um, I mean, but they don't even do like basic stuff. I mean, um, I didn't even learn until my last year in college that cuneiform was just a, a script um like a type of alphabet and i was like wait what i thought that was like a whole language um you know when you talk about cuneiform you don't talk about it being different you're just like oh but that's the language they they read and they wrote, wrote. and you're like but what so um yeah I I feel like except to the extent to which these ancient Near Eastern civilizations are seen to be to provide context for the, the Hebrew Bible, with the exception of that, the ancient Near East, it's not really seen as amusing scare quotes here, you know, our contemporary culture's heritage. Um, so it's generally seen as as the other and not really presented as 
as, as important or fundamental to to what people study you know and there are a lot of reasons i think why that happens and certainly part of it is on you know professional seriologists to to sort of make that case one way or another either that it is or that it might not be but it's still important for other reasons but it's it's a hot mess yeah i mean you know this is one of those things where i kind of wish like popular culture would really step up and help push academics toward making changes um you know anything i feel like i've seen outside of academia is sort of um fun but because we're not the experts we we're not really suited to explain i think have you seen there's a really fun song by they might be giants called the mesopotamians oh yeah of course yeah 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 I feel like most of my um, friends who study the Near East have seen that. And so, you know, it's one of the things I like to show friends who don't know anything about the ancient Near East. Um, But of course, it's a song, so they can't really explain that the distinct characters are sort of like half mythological, half real kings. um, But they're not all from the same empire. Um, And so I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know how to explain this in a way that it would make sense. And I would just confuse people. You know what? I mean, we're coming from from where I am, though, right? There, those are the actual names of the kings, or at least the names as transmitted through the Hebrew Bible. But those those are the names, and they sound amazing. And you know, like they should be in people's heads. I love that. And if that gets someone to want to look up who Hammurabi was or who Sargon was, I think that's that's wonderful. So I'm also thinking now that I think of that song, could some of the trouble with like making things from Assyria and Babylonia and just basically the Near East, um, like popular and, and super, well, more accessible. Is it? Could it also just be like people get scared by how long and seemingly complicated it is to pronounce some of the names and things? I mean, anyone who looks at Ashurbanipal or Nebuchadnezzar, they just see this and they just go, oh, no, 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 no. That's really long. It has a weird letter combo. I wouldn't know how to pronounce that correctly. I'll sound stupid. So I don't want to do it. I absolutely think that can be part of it for sure. I think I think for a very small minority of people that might like be the attraction. What is this super weird name? I want to know how to pronounce it. But I think they're like a tiny percentage compared to the people who are like, no way, I'm done. Because I mean, I think, well, I was like, thank you, Matrix, because I know that the Matrix, because Morpheus's ship was the Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I know the camera pans onto like the nameplate of the ship and you see it for a grand total of maybe five seconds as you just kind of see it and you see the name written out. So I know people who can pronounce it only because they're like, oh, yeah, 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 it's the name of Morpheus's ship from the, you know, from the Matrix. I'm like, okay, well. Thanks, popular culture. Thank you. Thank you. Um, But even if you haven't seen the movie, or even if you have, um, I think people know maybe how to pronounce it because they hear it. Uh, If you were to see it spelled, then you just go, oh, no, 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 no. I I mean, I've kind of just for fun put Nebuchadnezzar in front of people and said, here, pronounce this. I get so many different iterations of, oh, is that uh, um, Nebu? Chadnazar or something and you're like oh okay good 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 try good try um so yeah I mean it's it's kind of fun it's kind of like a superpower I can pronounce the weird thing um but also yeah it's 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 just interesting um because I always talk about the matrix I did see I read somewhere I don't remember where I read um 
but I, if I remember correctly, uh, you were working with something uh, with with the Amarna letters. So that's sort of one of my major research areas these days. It is more of a public facing project, also. Um, so that aspect of it is is really gratifying. Yeah, basically, you know, after I had been you know working on on Alalak in graduate school, and then you know once I finished, that became my my first book. And, and I should say, right, this is a site that's not in Iraq; it's in modern day Turkey. So these were people who were not speaking Akkadian, but yet they were choosing to do do write all their texts in Akkadian cuneiform, as lots and lots of people did at, at that time. And and that book was really kind of a deep dive into the nitty gritty social legal reality behind the texts. And it was only kind of when I was done with that book and I was able to step back that I was able to say, you know, you know what, what I'm really interested in and maybe what I should have studied started with is like, why are they doing this, right? Like, why are people choosing to write in this complicated script in a language that's not their own? And and I kind of got interested in that phenomenon more broadly. And I'm by far not the first person to have ever wondered this, like lots of people have. At the time, sort of relatively new um technological resource for a seriologist that was being developed by a seriologist, Steve Tenney at uh, the University of Pennsylvania, Eleanor Robeson at UCL, Nick Feldhus at um, UC Berkeley, put together something called ORAC, Open Richly Annotated Cuneiform Corpus, which basically let a seriologist in a kind of bottom-up way linguistically tag corpora, and then really with the push of a button, sort of build projects. And the idea is, is twofold, to make these sort of scholarly texts available to the world over the internet, but then also it becomes like a very great research tool for us because the project builds glossaries, we can search for sign strings, we can do all those sorts of things. So I decided, well, if I'm interested in, you know, studying this phenomenon of Akkadian outside of Iraq, one of the most kind of distinctive corpora is, is the Amarna letters because it's they're so inflected by Canaanite on the one hand, and then they're also written within this Egyptian social political context. And so I figured this would be a great place to start. And that was like seven years ago. Wow. I mean, yay for long-term project. Um, so I am very familiar with the Amarna letters. I have a friend who studies them. She's doing her PhD right now in Egyptology, um, but she's looking at textiles. It's really cool. Um, but for other people who may not know what they are, can you give us a broad description of what are the Amarna letters and why would something that so clearly sounds very connected to Egypt, which, well, Amarna is, um, you know, why would this be of interest to someone not studying Egypt? Yeah, absolutely. So around, say, like 1300 BC, the Levant, right, by which we mean Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, sort of this patchwork of of little kingdoms. Uh, I mean, even I think even calling them kingdoms is probably giving them too much too much credit. And and you had various sort of big geopolitical powers who had extended their their sort of influence into this area. So you have Egypt coming up from the south. You have um, the Hittites, right, coming down from the north. You have the Mitanni coming from the east. One of the things that's happening is a vibrant correspondence uh, where these guys are writing letters, um, complaining about all sorts of things or protesting their loyalty to whoever happens to be at that moment the geopolitical power that they are they are acknowledging and then the um that power is writing you know occasionally back to them so at this time when the egyptian pharaoh and his scribes are communicating with these um you know these sort of kinglets in the levant they're writing in akkadian cuneiform 
the kinglets are writing back, right, in Akkadian form. They're not using hieroglyphics or anything like that. What happens is um, these are all uh, these letters were all sent to the um, heretic pharaoh Akhenaten, right, who's got his new capital at Amarna. And after his death, when the um, capital is moved, they kind of just leave the incoming mail that had been sent there that they didn't care about anymore, that wasn't really relevant, which is why it survived to be excavated in, or not even excavated, dug up and looted in, in Egypt. That's so, yeah, no, it's it's really helpful to just be able to put it in context. Because um, I think the most common misconception when I have, occasionally mentioned the Amarna letters to friends who are not remotely involved in either classics or Egyptology or anything. They go, oh, Amarna letters just sounds like something that would come from the city of Amarna, like originate there and then be maybe sent out to people. I had some... I had a friend cleverly think it was like a series of decrees, and I was like, well, that's not a bad guess. Um, That's not what they are, but you know, hey, pretty good um but what i also love about the amarna letters are is, is it really shows the depth of um like cross-cultural communication um all over the region at that time and i think th- another misconception we talk about is when egypt was under akhenaten oh the Egyptians looked inward. They didn't really want to interact with other people. This was a time where, you know, oh, they're not out conquering other people. So, oh, they they just must be some little insular community. Um, and I love how the letters sort of disprove this idea that they just suddenly went dark and Egypt was in its little bubble. Yeah, that's right. No, they're definitely, I mean, there are, there are Egyptians who are out there, you know, in the Levant traveling around. I mean, there's been amazing work that's done on these letters, not so much just on the, um, on what they say, but chemical analyses of the clay. Right. And so it's showing that even if a letter says that it's from this King, uh, it might actually have been sent from some other place. And so these Kings are moving, you know, to Egyptian garrison. They're being summoned there and they're writing their letter and having it sent. And there's work that's being done on handwriting showing that, you know, it's not just like each king had his own scribe, but a single scribe could work for multiple kings. And it's just so we're getting this very, very um, richly nuanced picture, I'd say, within the last 20 years that's showing how complicated everything is, right? And these one-to-one sort of correlations between tablet, king, and scribe that we've been assuming don't hold. And in a way, like, isn't that actually what we should expect <laughs> life is very complicated it is indeed and so i'm i'm very curious um do, do you have like a favorite discovery or a fun tidbit from studying the letters like it, just something cool that you've you've encountered in having studied them um i yeah i think for me the thing that i've really gotten into over the past few years is looking at the actual tablets themselves um, not so much what's written on them, or, or I should say trying to maybe correlate what's written on them with um, what they look like. So at different times and places in in sort of Near Eastern history, we, we have letters from all these different periods. Sometimes the scribes really, really care about making the tablet the same size as the letter that it's going to have. And other times they don't care. So you have like blank space or they even need a second page or something like that, right? Sort of trying to get at how these scribes are able to actually figure out how much space they need is it's incredible, right? Can you imagine like making a piece of clay? Cause you know, so yeah, it's, so it's really neat. Anyway, 
at the Amarna, in the Amarna correspondence, a lot of the tablets have have blank space on their reverse. The letter ends early. And I just got very interested in this and, and started looking at it a lot and kind of asking myself, like, is there any way to try to tell whether this is intentional or not? Right. Is this just did they just consistently make the wrong size tablet? Did they use prefabricated tablets? Right. Or or is something else going on here? Sort of getting to look at that and compare it with other sort of extra linguistic markings like rulings or indentations or run over lines and, and seeing all of these almost like ephemera is actually historically contingent and meaningful has been what's the most exciting thing for me. So spoiler alert, I, I do think that I can show, right, that that this blank space um, correlates to a very particular sort of routine correspondence that the little kinglets were supposed to send to the pharaoh. And in fact, that it was left blank so that it could be processed when it was back in Egypt okay. and marked with ink with hieratic, showing that it had been read or summarized or something like that. Oh, that's so cool. I would not have thought of that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess when you think of other writing systems, you know, when you think of the Egyptians with their papyrus scrolls, I feel like, you know, a scroll is pretty standard, like, oh, okay. But yeah, I guess when it comes to when you're writing on a clay tablet, you you do have to um, think about, okay, am I going to produce something that has the space for, for what I need? I mean, it actually becomes another tool in your repertoire, right? Like you get to decide how big you want it to be. You get to decide whether it's portrait format or landscape, right? And there are certainly, you know, conventions. I mean, like almost every Amarna letter is is portrait, but there are some that are landscape. <laughs> you start asking yourself, why right i mean i was like yeah i want to know why because if i'm writing it would seem like i would want to give myself more vertical space because i mean landscape i'd be like well am i gonna draw a, a diagram a picture so i think one of the things that we're dealing with with the amarna correspondence everyone who's read them is familiar with ribata of biblos who wrote like 70 letters and he complains about this he complains about that these long long letters but they're really the outlier and and everything else is very very for the most part, constrained. Um, and there's not, you know, sort of like following diplomatic protocol, right? And it, for me, in a way, that's what makes it so exciting. If if you can't really say that much, then what tools do you have, right, outside of language when you're writing to communicate? That's true. I didn't even think about most of these. This, this is why I love learning new things every day. Well, okay. And now I'm going to ask a very simple, this is, this is the kind of question I'd categorize as a uh, dumb question for the expert because I just, you know, didn't study this. So I don't know when they're going to go and write more correspondence. Did they have to fire and like, you know, make the tablets beforehand and then they start writing like on, you know, oh, I need um, five of them. So I'll just, you know, fire up and make five tablets and then write on them. Or did they do it like one by one? Like I am going to do this one tablet, write, see what I can fit and then do another one. So it's it's a tricky question, right? Because the, the tablets actually have to be wet to be written on. So you can't if, if you make them beforehand, you need to keep them moist. You won't be able to use the reed stylus to, to, to scratch onto the clay. And then there are times where you can actually see that the tablet's drying and the wedges are becoming sort of like thinner and more difficult to impress and everything like that. And then the tablets would be presumably air dried, though in some cases it seems like for special tablets, they might have actually baked them in antiquity. And there's actually kind of a, a debate in the field about when tablets were actually baked, not just air dried and what sort and, and people are talking about this. It's very difficult because lots of tablets, um, 
that were brought into museums early in the 20th century were baked by the museums in order to present, prevent salts from coming out and destroying the tablet. But they didn't necessarily keep records about that, about the condition of the tablet when it entered or whether they baked it. So you can't always tell whether this is a tablet that was baked in antiquity or in the early 20th century. You just have a big tablet. The question of tablets and, and baking tablets and how you write tablets and uh, sort of preserve it is one that... Um, I'm totally fascinated by uh, my colleague in uh, uh, Charles University in Prague, um, Yana Minajeva, and I are actually organizing a session on this topic at an upcoming conference um, on baking tablets and data security and putting tablets in envelopes and all that sort of a thing. Um, so I, I could go on forever. Oh my gosh! Wait, I'm so excited. When is this conference? Can is it is it coming up soon, or can, can we advertise for this? Like what? So this is it's not like our our, our own workshop. It's our you know. Fields big conference, American School of Overseas Research, their annual meeting in November. So it'll be in Chicago right before Thanksgiving, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. So I didn't realize it's going to be at ASOR. Okay. Well, then, um, for anyone listening, I think, uh, wait, actually, yes, I think this episode will come out before then. We will advertise because... I'm trying to go to ASOR this year. I have friends out at UCLA who want to go. So I'm I I I do if I know that there's going to be a workshop on tablets, I I want to go and and learn more about it. So um we can definitely do that. Um okay, so I do so having talked a lot about the Amarna letters and how we're just unfamiliar not only with the letters themselves, but also just more broadly with how things worked in ancient Assyria and how there's this unfamiliarity other than a vague mention in the matrix. Are you familiar with any popular adaptation that we might be able to point people to, to say here, this is good. This is helpful. This is like not damaging the perception of Assyria. So there is a historical novel. I can't remember who wrote it. It's probably got to be 30 plus years old called The Assyrian that I read in graduate school. That's pretty good. That um, I enjoyed a lot. There's a fair number of things that are Hellenistic type stuff. Um, there's some terrible, terrible movies like the Sumerians, where the Sumerians are from the 50s, where the Sumerians are like mole people. But I have to say for me, uh, when I think about it, it's not it's not really Assyriological because it has to do with, with Petra um the Nabataean capital um during the Roman Empire. I don't know if you've ever been or seen photos or anything like that. But I, I don't know if you play video games at all, but there's a this video game Overwatch, the deathmatch map. So I think if I think about off the top of my head my sort of Near Eastern world and pop culture that I love the most, I think it's that map. I've played that map many, many times. Um walked all or I could probably walk around that in my head, right? Um and seeing Petra in person was like one of the things I've most wanted to do when I just got to do it this past December. And it was so incredible. But of course, I couldn't go in. It's just this absolutely amazing facade, right? But I was like, nope, no, no worries, right? I played Overwatch. I can just take my my mental journey right now. Oh, man. Yeah, that's true. I had completely forgotten about Overwatch. I think, though, it's because when I usually do video games, I, I stay within the realm of Assassin's Creed. But I'm mad because they do such a great ancient Egypt or, well, Hellenistic Egypt. They do such a great ancient Greece. Um, 
And I'm just kind of mad over here. Like, why will you not do ancient Mesopotamia? Give us something, you know, um, I'm not super familiar with any Mesopotamian history, but I'm like, I'm sure you could put it, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, find something you could, they could find something to do with Sarkon or many, many options. And I would be more than happy to consult. Please, please. And because the, the one sort of mythological thing I am familiar with is Humbaba. And I was like, I want to see Assassin's Creed figure out how to introduce an audience to Humbaba. Um, because if they could do the Sphinx and the Cyclops and all these other mythological beasts, and I mean, the risks they took with the ancient Egypt game, Origins, I'm like, I was had to be sat down by some of my Egyptologist friends because I started having questions about the, the differentials between a Ka and a Ba, which are like the soul and the spirit of the dead person in the afterlife. And I was like, these are complex, complex concepts that somehow they're like, okay, we're going to introduce people to it. I think that's way harder than talking about a humbaba. So I'm like, please help me to understand why we get that, but we don't get an ancient Assyria or Babylon. You know, actually, while, while we've just been talking, um, it occurred to me that the, probably the most prominent recent one for Mesopotamia is a Marvel Avengers movie. I haven't seen it myself, right? But in the early scenes, they are in Babylonia. And my colleague at Trinity, Martin Worthington, actually consulted for them and wrote all that dialogue in in Babylonian. So that's pretty. Oh, that's right. Oh, my gosh. I just watched Eternals like a month ago. I mean, it wasn't very long. I mean, yeah, they started in like ancient Mesopotamia. And then you have, you know, a few scenes. And then, yeah, they do shift to Babylon and I was like okay very sudden sudden shift all that all that dialogue is legit oh my gosh I had no I mean I figured they weren't just gonna put some random random language because then everyone would go crazy but I did not know that they actually consulted and like got real real like the real stuff he showed me his his files right and and sort of what the workflow was and it's just it's just fascinating it's a, a intellectually very stimulating you know, issue to be like, here's what we want you to write. And here's what comes out because it's not as easy, right? Like Acadian will specify, require the gender to be specified or marked, right? In at times when English won't, he has to have all that information, right? When he's doing it, but that's his story to tell. You should get in touch with him for a podcast. That'd be really good. Um, Now that I know that that is a thing, of course, I must do that. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, what a great plug right there. Thank you. Thank you. And my listeners, hopefully, will thank you as well when uh, hopefully that materializes. Um, and I guess while we're we're in this headspace, I was just thinking, I guess it's like not fully Mesopotamian, but like it's a it's a weird mishmash. Did you see like the 19, I want to say, was it in the 80s, the original Clash of the Titans? Oh yeah, but I think I saw it in the 1980s. So yeah, I like I I rewatched it vaguely recently within the last year. I I just remember being very confused um, because there's such a difference between the the 1980s version and then the, the remake that they did in about 2010. Because um, the 2010 was all it was just the it was on Argos and it was very Greek. Everything was Greek. I remember it more as a Greek sort of thing. In, in the 80s one, is there Near Eastern stuff? Sort of. So they set it in the mystical city of Joppa, um, but the architecture looks very 
Mesopotamian. Like there's there's a bunch of um, Greek and Mesopotamian looking sphinxes. The walls from the city they say is is they say it's a Greek city completely. Um, it literally looks like the walls from Babylon. So I'm like, um, okay. So so I just remember a lot of the visual aspects look very Mesopotamian. Um, and I was like, but this is Greek supposedly. So, so I was just, I was like, I don't know what this is. This is a hodgepodge. So I think the myth takes place off the coast of Yaffa, ancient Joppa, but that's like Levantine and Mediterranean, right? Now. Yeah. I was like, that's not close to like Babylon. So I just remember watching that and being like, my brain is visually very confused as I'm being told it's, it's, it's Greek. It's, Greek, Perseus, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I can't follow. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I want more. I want more things, more popular culture. I mean, if they can make that shitty uh, gods of Egypt, god awful, whatever that was when they're flying metal monsters, uh, which is not even believable at all. Um, I'm like, it, it should not be a far jump to do something in, in Mesopotamia. So I will you know, get off my soapbox, but um, every time there's an opening, I'm always like, do more things in Mesopotamia. It's worthy of of coverage. Um, people actually would discover they like Sumer. They they like Babylonia. I want to see ziggurats. Like, I don't want to just vague mention of them. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, I I think that when when people are sort of introduced to it, they always love it, right? I I think it's more just a question of getting it out there and not shooting ourselves in the foot by you know weird names for the discipline and everything. Because I don't th- I don't find it to be more complicated than ancient Egypt. I mean, some people might give you know say that argument, but um, I I just don't find that that's true. The last thing I kind of do to end the interview portion of the podcast is I have three questions. One is when you were either an undergrad or grad student, did you attend office hours? Uh, I, I definitely, I mean, for instance, I, when I was writing my senior thesis, I remember for sure going to my advisor's office hours, or maybe we had like a standard, you know, 10 a.m. meeting or something like that. But I don't know that I regularly went to office hours. Yeah. But it, it took me a few years as an undergraduate to figure out what actually being a student meant you know completely understandable because honestly yeah you're right nobody knows what they're doing their first couple years um we just kind of go oh okay i'm a student now and i have freedom and i'm away from my parents and i could do whatever i want right exactly Um, freedom horrible i know (laughs) it's a bit like everyone you desperately want it and then you get there and you're like actually it's terrifying because now for the first time in your life no one's telling you what to do where to go when to do anything um so figuring out when to feed myself was like the first thing that i was like wait i'm I'm an adult now because my parents will just cook me breakfast and dinner and pack my lunch. So, um, yeah, it's a strange time. So, okay. The second question is, and and you can pull this now from your experience as an educator yourself for you hosting or having office hours as an educator. Is there any particular conversation or fun memory that sticks out of a time that you, you know, were doing an office hour? Um, you know, I, actually don't hold regular office hours anymore because I found that students don't come to them. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure why that is. I, my guess is that the times that I can office hold office hours, you know, Hopkins is a very STEMI place. So there are a lot of labs that take up afternoons and things that I just am not, you know, like meeting students where 
they need to be with office hours. So all my office hours are by appointment now. I don't know if that still counts as office hours. Okay. But then the thing I also started doing this most recent year, we have this new initiative of first year seminars at Hopkins, which are really great. And one of the aspects of it is, um, sort of given us money that we can use to buy students food. And so I started having sort of as a new type of office hours, lunch, just an open lunch for whoever wants to come every other week. And that I think was actually one of the most successful ways I've started to um, to interact with students outside of the classroom. And I would say that the, the our conversations are almost never about what class is about. <laughs> You know, maybe it's about the subject more generally, but mostly they're just excited to let me know who they are as people. And that's what I'm excited and interested to learn about. So that's what we talk about. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, one, I love the initiative. Go Hopkins. That sounds amazing. I wish my professors got money to like feed me. Um, I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, I was sort of like, well, I did pay for like a meal plan. So I guess I don't really need someone to buy me foods if I, my parents are already like paying. But yes, I, love that. And I wish that was a thing when I was um, a student. So yay, Hopkins. And we actually just got an email today that they had um, re-upped this money, even though we're not teaching this semester, we still have it for the spring so that we can continue the relationships, you know, outside of after the class. Oh, that's so wonderful. Okay. Well, I like this new sort of office hour. I don't know. Like, I guess I use office hours as a term to broadly describe a time to meet students. Um, it does not have to actually be in an official office setting. It could be on the go because I've I have professors who tell me that yeah they they kind of take their office hours on the go so that it's like more of a walk around campus and chat with students. So I'm like oh that's great I love it. The third and final question I have is um well if you were going to give an elevator pitch for why students should attend office hours. What would you say? Um, I, I think what what happens, right? The, to to let them sort of become for the professor something more than this person who shows up two times a week for an hour and a half, right? Because they're they're human beings, and the faculty members are generally interested in in these human beings, but have you know sort of limited opportunities to actually get to know them because they've got twelve to twenty five to forty of them in the room, right? And so like bam, you've got this like free moment to communicate to this faculty member, you know, your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your interests, your curiosity, and they're going to be interested. And then you'll actually probably get to learn a little bit more about them too. Yeah. I couldn't have put it better myself. My, um, I, I find it regrettable when you said that people don't go to office hours. Um, I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I have so many friends who literally never went once. And so they had like no idea really what happened there. And, and I lived in my professor's office hours. I, I really did. When I say that, you know, people are like, Oh, ha, ha, that's so funny. That's like just a thing you say. Right. And I was like, no, I would show up early in the mornings whenever I had to be on campus and I would go sit in my professor's office. Cause she had these like really cushy chairs and then she had a drawer full of chocolate and then even when she would have to leave to teach a class, she would say, I, you can stay in my office, eat chocolate, work on homework, do whatever you want. And I was like, yes, please. So I would be there like all day and I would just run out to go to class, maybe get some food. And I would honestly bring food back for my professor because she was doing me this favor. And I always got use of her office unless she had a student meeting. And I could just sit and do work quietly and not be bothered by people on campus. And it was like the biggest, best secret. So, um, 
yeah, it's always regrettable when people, when I hear people not going. So I'm like, go to office hours. They're amazing. It's great. Um, and then you get free help. She helped me do my taxes once and I had no idea how to do taxes. And so she did it for me. And I was like, you are the best teacher ever. Um, teacher, life coach. Wow. It sounds like you've had a really, it sounds like you had a really amazing relationship with her. I did. And she retired like a year after I left. So I was like, okay, I got out while the going was good. And then now they don't have her on campus as a resource, which sucks. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. She was wonderful. And then actually when she retired, uh, I left her office because she had a bunch of little knickknacks and posters. She had like a Garfield poster about um, like Mondays or something. And I loved it. And then she had a collection of little action figures from like the Disney Hercules and stuff. And um, so when she retired, I got a beautiful email from her saying, would you like my Garfield poster and my little Cyclops figurine from Hercules? And I said, of course I would. And so I drove down and, and I and I got my poster and my action figurine. Now you have you still have like a little piece of that of that office, right? That second home that meant so much to you. I do. So I, I miss it. I think of it almost, you know, every week, at least once. And I go, oh, man, I just want to go there. So I love office hours. Everyone listening, if you are a student, go to them. Don't skip them. It's wonderful. Um, and so, okay, the last thing I have every guest do is read Percy Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And then after you've read it, if you could just, you know, give us your quick thoughts on, uh, you know, people have described this poem as being, um, you know, one of the greatest poems ever as, as having a, a strong message as being unforgettable. And I'm just curious to see if you agree and why, yes, or why not. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of old command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Well, I guess for me, as, as an Assyriologist, right, the Epic of Gilgamesh is kind of for us what the Iliad and the Odyssey is for a Greek scholar, right? Or um, the Aeneid is for a Latinist, or I don't know what, you know, Shakespeare is for for English scholars. It's it's kind of the touchstone for all things. And, and you know, reading this, it's almost impossible for me to not read it sort of refracted through Gilgamesh, um, right? Because because sort of one of the, the central concerns of Gilgamesh, which is a story, but also a piece of political philosophy in a way, it's about... It's about what it means to be a good human, to be a good ruler, all of these, these things. Objects made by kings and the extent to which they persist is, is a central concern, right? So it, so Gilgamesh actually makes a very sharp distinction between statues, which are sort of meant to glorify or commemorate the person of the king or an individual and, and the city walls that surround the populace and protect them and, and endure. So I don't know. It's been a while since I, I took English classes, but yeah, you know, I'd say right. Shelley's writing a good fifty years or so before Gil, the very first edition of of Gilgamesh was ever known any part of it to to anybody, right? So I wonder, does this sort of central conceit stay the same or or change get nuanced if Shelley had read Gilgamesh? Ooh, you know, I'm, I don't think I've heard this poem through the Gilgamesh lens. So I, I love learning new new ways to think about it. Um, I'm so used to looking at it probably the way that Shelley intended it. I, I can't say if he really intended it, but I mean, um, through the Egyptological lens, um, because Ozymandias was based off of the statue of Ramesses II that was going to be coming to uh, London when when he wrote this in 1818. So I know he was thinking of ancient Egypt, I believe, and the desert sands and this this lost empire and and all this Egyptomania stuff. But I really do love that it can also apply to you know Assyriologists and Gilgamesh and um, really I it it makes my appreciation for this poem even higher. I mean it really is so transcendent because I can apply it to. The, Greek sphere, the classical one, the Egyptian, the, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, it's, it's really very resonant from a sort of Mesopotamian perspective. Oh, that's incredible. And, and even from the modern, the more modern perspective, um, which also I tend to, to read it through is, you know, it's a, it's a very political statement by Shelley. Um, it's this talking about this ephemeral power, you know, the ephemeral nature of, of power. And um, it talks about legacy and, um, but it, it's also kind of a memento mori, right? Like a reminder you will die because actually this king is not alive for a, a thousand years. He's dead. And where's his empire now? And it's a little bit about about 
about the artist, right? Because the king might be dead, but but what's surviving, right? But this, you know, wrinkled lip that's still there. And Oh, it's so powerful. And so the last question that I ask every guest is, when you consider all that we've talked about now with this poem, do we have a modern equivalent of an Ozymandias-type thing? Like something we think is so great and realistically will humans couple hundred years from now be like oh yeah yeah yeah, we agree that's amazing or will they look back and be like what were those humans thinking like that's horrible and terrible no 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 so i i don't know if this is a fair way to answer the question but i frequently think something along these lines like engage in this thought sort of thought experimentation which is like two thousand years from now you know what will archaeologists be digging up you know what i mean that that sort of a thing and so sort of from that that imagining ourselves in the forward looking backward perspective i think the thing that i'm i'm really struck by is just how there's going to be almost no writing i think we're going to seem like an almost illiterate society right if you think about it all of the digital writing absolutely gone really all of the books gone i mean how much do we really have carved in stone right we're going to have some tombstones uh, we're going to have some like bank facades <laughs> and, and now imagine like the, right, the position that those future archaeologists are going to be on. Well, they knew how to write, but you know, they really only reserved it for very, very particular monumental funerary occasions, like money and death. That, that was it. That was writing. Goodness. I didn't even, oh my gosh, you're right though. And I sort of feel like that, that sort of a thought experiment is actually really useful to do because then you look at some of the conclusions that we make as historians looking at the past record and you look about how, how, you know, sort of how crazy it could be. I mean, you're totally right. Like, oh my goodness though. Um, yeah, it's insane. I mean, and here I was, I was like, oh, okay, I'm really old school. And there are a few friends that I have in Europe that I have asked to still physically correspond with that. I was like, you know, I just like the the ritual of writing an actual letter. But even those even those letters aren't going to be around, right? That paper is going to have long ago degraded and decomposed. Oh my gosh. Well, that means I just need to build myself a tomb like Nicolas Cage wants, a pyramidal tomb and engrave all my stuff because otherwise it'll be lost forever. Or maybe we should just teach people how to write on clay tablets again. Exactly. And then fire them and then save them forever. This is what I think too. Oh, excellent. Or, you know, I don't know, teach people to write on papyrus scrolls again or or something really fun. Um, And then, you know, bury them in sand so they're fine. Um, Okay, so I kind of lied that the actual last question I'll ask you is where can people find you or follow your work or, you know, get in touch to say, I would like to study with you at Hopkins? Yeah, yeah. So I think probably two places. Um, One is if you just Google Johns Hopkins and my name, I'll come up on the um, uh, my departmental website. And then I also have a page on academia. Um, .edu where I um, you know, keep all my research. Uh, you can find download PDFs of most of my articles and things like that. And I think there's actually even a link to that on my Hopkins page. Okay, excellent. Well, I will hyperlink those in the show notes so people can just automatically find you. Um, I'll make their work easier. Can I just add add one thing also? So I I, I wouldn't want this um, this really lovely conversation to end without. Um, pointing out that I, I happen to do most of my academic work in the region of Turkey, uh, one of the regions of Turkey, the Hatay province, that's been just so absolutely horribly hit by um, by the earthquakes that have happened this month. Uh, and I know the communities there are 
are really, really suffering. And the, uh, two of the excavations that I work for are doing an amazing, amazing job um, working with the local communities and making sure that people are are getting, you know, just like something like a portable propane stove so that they can have finally hot food and things like that. So um, I'm hoping if it's possible um, also when this comes out that we could add links to some um, GoFundMe campaigns that those excavations are doing to try to help. So your listeners can, if they feel so inclined, um, help the people who've been so horribly struck. Yeah, of course. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for mentioning that. Yes, we will definitely put some links in. I hope by by then, because this won't probably come out until like June or July uh, at this point. But I, you know, I hope by then the situation gets better. But I'm sure there's always going to be more people who need help. So we will definitely do that. And so um, with that, I do really want to thank you for joining me on the podcast this morning. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. I always love learning more and talking to people who study things that I've always been fascinated by, but have never really gotten to formally study. So um, it's been just really fun to to learn more about uh, ancient Assyria. Well, thank you for um, for having me, Lexi. It's really been a, a pleasure. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.